This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's guest is Paulina Halfield. Paulina is a medium telepath, transpersonal counselor, shamanic practitioner, past life regression therapist, and earth energy specialist. She has also had a near-death experience that changed her contact experiences and her understanding of why she was having them. Paulina, I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time today and welcome. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for um, speaking to me on your podcast and you're welcome for my time. All right. So my audience loves to talk about near-death experiences and we'll actually hear about them. Can we start with yours and start on the day that it happened to you? Sure. Uh, My near-death experience happened in the 1980s. So it was quite a while ago. And I was uh, in Israel. I was living in a community in Israel. And about a month uh, to two months beforehand, I had travelled from Turkey by boat and we had an unexpected stopover in Cyprus. And I'm just sharing that to give an idea of how that settled in. And we were meant to stop at Cyprus, I apologise, but we actually stopped at Rhodes. I bought some water like many people did and the water was contaminated. So many people became sick in the belly. And um, that was okay. That was that's what happens when you move around the world and you drink weird water sometimes. But by the time I was in Israel, things were in my stomach and my digestion area and my pelvis and groin, things were bad. So I had um, sought help to try and figure out what was going on. And eventually I went to see a gynecologist and the gynecologist told me that um, in the morning, he told me that I had a very large cyst on an ovary. And that I needed to be careful because of its size and because it may twist and rupture. And he said, go away. Um, I can't remember if he gave me some tablets. Go away and come back in a week if things are uh, still a problem and we'll see what we need to do. And so when I left the consultation office, I was very um, cautious, like, oh, I want because he was like very clear about be very careful. Um, so I thought to myself, well, how careful is careful? And if something happens, how do you know it's going to happen? Turns out it's really easy to know when something happened because later that night, about 10 p.m., and that was on the 13th of December in uh, 1986, the cyst ruptured and. The how it, how I experienced that was I suddenly felt like um, I was in um, shock. My body was shaking and trembling. I was in a lot of pain as well. So there was pain, shock, and trembling, and I was struggling to breathe. And I thought this must be a cyst rupture. And I was in a community where not all of us spoke English. And I thought, well, I need help. And I knew from what the specialist had told me that if something happened, I needed to get to hospital. So I was calling out to somebody who 
was nearby um, in another room and said, could they go and find a doctor or a specialist? Or um, Basically, I wanted somebody to take me to the hospital is what I wanted. So I wasn't actually looking for a doctor or a specialist. I was just looking for somebody to take me to the hospital. And it turns out that the community nurse, um, there was a, a, a community nurse, I didn't know that, and uh, she went off to um, come to find me and she sent the person who'd gone off to find the nurse off to find a driver. And that driver on the community happened to be a student doctor. So I was in luck, really. Um, so as the driver, uh, the doctor got his car um, ready to take me to the hospital, I walked with the um, nurse to the car. There's four door cars. We had a discussion as to who was going to sit where. Obviously, I wasn't going to be driving, but the nurse wasn't sure whether she should sit in the back seat with me or not. It wasn't a big car. I'm a tall person, so um, we decided she'd sit in the front and I would sit in the back, and she would lean around through the back to keep an eye on me periodically. And so when we got in the car, the hospital... I'd say was about 30 miles away. Uh, it was at least a 30-minute drive away, depending on the traffic. And um, I couldn't lay down in the car. She said to me, lay down. And there were two things. Firstly, I was too long to do that. But also, I thought instinctively, if I lay down, I'm not going to survive. I'm just going to, I, I won't live through this. I didn't think that with any concern. I was not frightened in any way. But I was very clear that if I lay down, I wouldn't survive. And I was struggling to breathe. And I thought if I sit up and lean against the car door and put my feet along the seat with my knees bent, chances are better. And so I got myself into that position and then I rested my head on the window. And it was cool glass and it was really nice because my body was feeling really hot really inflamed, really sore, and I was, as I said, I was struggling to breathe and struggling to um, do anything, really. you think, do anything. So they had a discussion about which hospital they'd go to, whether there was a, an outpost or anything to go to, and they decided to go to the town, uh, the city, which was about, like I said, about 30 miles away. And I just left them to it. Then I was concentrating on breathing, concentrating on just, letting whatever was happening in my body to happen, um, resting my head. And then the, the, we, it was 10 o'clock at night that the event started, so I don't know what the time was by then, but it was definitely dark. And as we were driving out of the, um, the roadway of the community and onto the road to then go into the, village, the, town, the villages and the town on the way, I was looking up at the stars. And it was just beautiful. And I was thinking, oh, my God, they're amazing. And this is really cool. And then cool as in the window was cool, not cool as in, oh, it's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, I was, there was a big blue eye that came to my third eye crown chakra area. And I felt it drawing me out of my body. And I just went. And... But it happened in an instant. It wasn't something that I thought about. It wasn't something that I planned. It happened in an instant. 
and I was out and I was above the car and I could see the roof of the car. And then I took another breath, it felt like, and then I was further out. And then I could see the car on the road. I could see the three bodies in the car, the two people in the front, my body at the back. And I could see the roads. I could see the top of the trees. I could see the villages around and I could see the houses around. Then I was, um, I took another breath and I was further out and I could see like where we were heading to the hospital. I could see for miles and miles. My wingspan, if you like, was enormous. And it was very still and quiet, but equally it was weird because it was like there was the sound of what I now know as the audible live stream. So there were sounds of, um, I guess, elements moving and, and things happening. So then I went further out and I could see the stars, I could see the planets, I could see various planets and I was out in the cosmos. And as I was out there, um, I was thinking, wow, this is just amazing. Uh, and I had a sense of being at one with everything. There was no separation to anything. And then I felt the element of wind rush through my body. And as it rushed through, it kind of took my breath away. And I was recovering from that because I was, on the one hand, I didn't have a body, but it felt like it was rushing through a body. It was rushing through my consciousness, I guess. And then um, water rushed through, and then fire rushed through, and then the earth rushed through, and each one felt like it was teaching me something and showing me something and helping me to understand something and also solidify something in a very weird way When because I wasn't in matter. I was without matter. But I understood that these elements and the ether, the, the consciousness that I was in, are what makes up everything in matter and everything in consciousness. And so I was in awe of this and I was thinking, wow, if anyone asked me a question, whatever that question might be, I knew the answer. And it wasn't from a point of being very clever. It was from a point of being deeply connected to consciousness and all that is. And then I went further out into space and then I was in a, a place where the, the best way to describe it would be like a corridor of light or just I was in the light and the light was huge. There was no boundary to it. But I knew that there were like doorways that were accessible to me. And, it, and it, um, the, the floor, for want of a better word, if there, were, there wasn't really a floor, it was like clouds, but it wasn't it was light. And the doors weren't really doors, but they were. So it's that when we try to describe it from the left brain, it doesn't make sense. But from the right brain, it was completely and absolutely making sense and feeling everything and experiencing everything. And then um, in that space, uh, I had access to all the past lives, all of the Akashic records relevant to me and relevant to the planet and relevant to consciousness. And I was just bathing in that. And I was also re recognizing the things that I'm not. And um, so realizing, you know, we're not our thoughts. Wow. We're not our bodies. 
We're not our emotions. We're just this cosmic consciousness energy and love is at the foundation of all of that. And the love was profound and it was home and it was glorious to be home. And so I was in the throes of experiencing that and recognising that um, I was uh, travelling a lot with a backpack at the time, so it was kind of like all the things that I had um, thought were important perhaps about the personality were irrelevant. So it was kind of like take the backpack off. That, everything is just a backpack, take it off. And um, it was interesting to me because I already, before the near death, I believed in past lives. I'd had experiences with um, angels and contact experiences throughout my life and I had medium and psychic encounters. So I knew that there was another, there were other realms and I knew that um, other beings existed and I, I also knew that there were past lives and I knew that we didn't die when we die. But this was like um, a visceral experience of that, which was absolutely profound and um, enabled me to really trust that I knew that stuff because the people around me didn't. So I think that was a part of the reason why I had that as well as other things which I may talk about later. And so I was in that um, having all of these experiences but just being filled with the light and, and there was um, be, different beings around but generally I was in the light and I was me and there was just this energy around and I would say that there were um, beings that were speaking telepathically like I was getting information telepathically um, but there was no sign of a person there's no sign of um, you know a family member deceased or anything it was me and light and it was the consciousness of all of you and uh, then um, back on earth um, the person the, the nurse in the car had realised that my pulse had gone and panicked and grabbed hold of my wrist and was trying to check if there was a pulse there and was also trying to uh, move her body so she could reach the pulse in the neck. And that, her touching my hand, jolted me back into the body. And then I heard them have a discussion. She was in panic because she couldn't find my pulse. Uh, they had a discussion about how far it was to the hospital and I managed to stay in the body and then we got to the hospital. I was seen in the emergency situation and then over the next couple of days I left my body and I left my body repeatedly um, and I would be out in the cosmos and I would be back in that place of the light and I couldn't, I could, it was like I couldn't tether my body, my consciousness back into my body properly. And I knew, and I didn't know that I knew what the oversoul meant, <laughs> but I sort of did, but sort of didn't. But I knew that the oversoul couldn't, um, like if I didn't get the oversoul to meet with the new frequencies, because the body frequencies have changed so much, that if I didn't get the oversoul to be able to tether back in, again, I wouldn't survive it. So um, I knew that water was going to be important in the magnetic frequency. So as soon as I could, um, I 
wasn't really able to walk and well enough to walk, so I crawled across the floor and went to into the bathroom and um, reached up um, and turned the water on and just let the water go over my body. And then I drank a bit of the water and I knew that that was the way to rebalance the frequencies. And my oversoul managed to then uh, stay in and for the body to uh, figure out what was going on. And so then over the next um, few weeks, it was about uh, reparation and um, trying to stay in and uh, also just coming to terms with that. Um, and then I needed to get back to the UK, which is my home country, get back there and get some treatment and be seen by people to sort the damage out that had happened. And uh, then that led me on a on another journey. Um, and I think within the experience itself, um, in my Briggs and Jungian um, psychology, uh, I'm a, an INFP, an introvert, um, intuitive, feeling, perceptive, perception person. And so I had always... Um, garnered my experience of life registered my experience of life according to my feelings and my intuition and my perception so i didn't have a doubt about what i had experienced i i wasn't in a left brain dilemma of things happening that i couldn't um identify or cope with um but what had happened was the that aspect of the infp was shifted up to a soul level frequency and so um, everything was really heightened and uh, it it took a while to bring that back into a sense of being able to um, do day-to-day things, I suppose, and not, not have things break or not have um, strange things happen. So that was kind of the basis of it, of the near-death experience and um, as I said, it happened quite some time ago. And at the time it happened, uh, near-death research was, there, was a lot of pe- there were a lot of people researching near-death experiences and they were asking particular questions relative to that. And two questions became really popular in the field of near-death research. One was, did you see the light? And did you go into a tunnel? There were other there were five questions, but those two became the predominant ones that people related to more and more. And um, I didn't have a need to do a whole lot of research and find out what other people had experienced because for me it had been a direct experience and I felt it and understood it. But I was curious as to how they were researching these things and how they were exploring them. So that then led me on to another journey of. I didn't find anyone who'd had a similar experience to me in, in um, the things that I discovered at that time. But I also was fascinated that they were not looking into these as an experience of consciousness. They were looking into them from a point of um, what felt to me like a, a left-brain scientific endeavour. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It just didn't feel right for me given my experiences and how visceral and how intuitive and perceptive and feeling-oriented they were. You use the word oversoul. Can you define that for me, please? 
I'll do, I'll try to, because it's one of those things that, uh, uh, it's, it's like if I said the blue eye came, the blue of that eye is not something that exists on third dimension. It's just impossible to explain exactly what the blue colour was and, it, and what the eye was like, and the oversoul is a bit like that. But so my understanding of the oversoul is when we're preparing to incarnate um, and we have the soul energy or the soul aspect, and some people don't believe there is a soul, but I currently do, and uh, the soul aspect is preparing. We, we create everything to um, come together so that we can have an incarnation that helps us grow and change when we have specific things we want to grow and change in. And the oversoul is a part of that. So it's kind of like, the, in a way, the 10th dimensional aspect of who we are that is assisting in the process and monitoring the process as well. And that feeds the energy between the oversoul and the ego. And the more we can become connected to the soul rather than living the egoic life, the more we begin to absolutely connect with the oversoul. Did that explain anything? <laughs> I, yeah, I got an idea of it. Um, two things. Do you think that the oversoul is always outside the body? And second, some people use the word higher self. Is that the same thing? Okay, first question, I don't believe the oversoul is outside the body. I believe it's connected to the frequencies in the body. So I think it's rather like consciousness is everywhere, so it's in everywhere, but it's also um, affecting how the body is, if that makes sense, which was why I needed uh, it to be able to tether so that the two aspects of me, the the, the consciousness aspect of me and the which is would be the non-physical aspect um as a human body anyway could uh could work together because you need that element of consciousness in order to function fully in a soul-based way sorry what was the second question you asked me again um could the over soul also be called the higher self oh I don't think the oversoul is the higher self because the higher self um, has a knowing and has something else, but I don't think uh, I don't think they're the same thing. Okay. There was something that you mentioned that I found interesting. I believe you said that we are not our thoughts mm. and we are consciousness. Yes. If you did say that, then what's the difference? Well, everything is consciousness experiencing itself. We are all just consciousness experiencing itself. And I say just like it's nothing, but that's hugely profound. And the foundation of that consciousness is love. And we, in the volunteering capacity to come in to become matter, we place certain things into the energy template in order to become human and have a life and have a body and and have interactions with people. And so in all ancient cultures, and particularly in the East, they they talk about mind as in recognizing that we're not our thoughts. Thoughts come through us 
And because in the West we're very oriented towards thinking, thinking and examining the world from thought processes and um, what we need to do today and what we need to do next month and all the planning and am I a good person or are they a good person or what they did to me, all of those thoughts, they seem like that is who we are. But these are only only patterns of consciousness running through us. Hmm. And so the body comes, um, you know, is, is, comes through as matter. And so it has a connection to the earth, but we're only the bodies temporarily. The thoughts are not ours and the emotions are not ours, and yet they become a part of our template that helps us to grow and change. But what happens predominantly is that um, people believe that we're the body or believe that we're our thoughts, and increasingly more and more people believe that we are our emotions, that our emotions um, help us. They help, all of these things help us make an understanding of the world but they are not who we are and all we are and everything we are is consciousness experiencing itself in matter. All right, I'm going to try to work through what you're saying here and try to separate this. So when someone is outside their body, including you, you were still having thoughts. And so mm -hmm. they realize, okay, I'm not my body, I'm something else. Yeah. But when does it become a point where you don't even have thoughts anymore? You're just pure consciousness. And then what are you doing when you are just pure consciousness and you're not thinking anymore? Well, that's interesting that you asked that question because for me, since I had the experience, I've been um, working in my own journey and also doing what I can to help others to have that experience of remembering who we are and who we are not reconnecting to um, who we are and who we are not and also to the earth and the cosmos and the galaxies and then taking that journey of really understanding if we're not all those things then who are we without the thought like what is consciousness um, you know in in um, eastern again in eastern religions and in shamanic um, uh, shamanic and earth-based cultures there is a sense of we are not these things. We are something bigger. And what is that bigger thing? And in the process of coming back to a full understanding of being a soul, that is when thoughts will come forward and you can feel them rising up. But they are conscious. They are the thoughts of consciousness. They are not the thoughts of the ego. I've heard someone say before that free will does not exist. And I think his example was, if I to ask you quickly, what is your favorite movie? Your brain is going to pop two or three answers in your head immediately. You're not going to have to sit there and scroll through movies in your mind and think about it. It's just going to immediately give you answers. And so a lot of the things and a lot of our behaviors are also just pop into our brain and we're kind of on automatic pilot even in our behavior in regards to that when people are outside of their body and they're having their ndes they seem to be not concerned with so many of the things on earth anymore so it appears that some of that goes away mm. but 
not all of it. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are on this. Well, I think with the free will, uh, I think there's kind of two things that go on with that. I'm sure there's a lot more, but I'll talk about two things. And one is that in some, because I have a lot of contact experiences and I've had those through my life, and many of the contact experiences come from beings who are trying to help humanity understand more about love and about free will. And they discuss that we are sovereign beings and that we make our own choices and that nothing can prevent us from doing so. And that also when the veil comes, like some of us have a thin veil, we come in, others it's a very thick veil, so to speak, even though the veil is almost an illusion. But so when we come down, you know, we purposely forget things. So if we knew that we were going to have a child and that child would die when we were two, we would never have the child. Or if we knew that we were going to have a serious accident, something was going to happen, we would never do that. So part of this whole sense of forgetfulness is so that we can not so much learn how to enjoy the ride, but not be have that free will so that we can make those decisions based on having free will to make the decisions rather than thinking, well, I'm never going to ride a motorbike because it because or when I'm 26, I'm never going to ride a motorbike because I know I'm going to come off and I'm going to break my arm and, you know, a whole series of things. So it's really about having as much free will as possible and they don't invade that space. They, they, they help in times of need, but they're not trying to tell us what to do in our lives and enable us to keep our sovereignty. And that is for us to learn that we are sovereign beings and we have free will and free choice. However, consciousness experiencing itself is way at a very high vibration than anything to do with free will. Because if we are all an aspect of consciousness experiencing itself, consciousness wants to have as many experiences as possible for the joy of it. And there is no um, judgment. It is consciousness experiencing itself and all those people who um, achieve enlightenment on a permanent basis and many of us have aspects of it for a while but the people who permanently have that um, sense of enlightenment know that um, we are not our body we're not our thoughts and we're not our emotions and so it is consciousness playing out within us and that is when the full surrender of the ego, we talked about that before, the full surrender of the ego goes. And so we realize we are not our thought, well, like we're not creating the, we are co-creating the reality on one level, but it is consciousness within us that is having these experiences. And we're just really, really lucky if we are living a joyful life because if consciousness had a different and not so much a need for a different experience, but a different aspect of consciousness experiencing itself, our life can be very different. The way I'm interpreting from you is that consciousness is more, it's almost like just being energy. And second of all, um, it sounds like we're all part of one, you know, like some people will say we're all God or we're all one together and maybe there's just one consciousness or maybe you want to say energy or whatever, but it all expresses itself in billions of ways through different people's lives and experiences. Yes, 
it expresses itself in many different ways. We're all unique aspects of consciousness. And why would consciousness want everyone to be the same? Of course, yeah. Because if everyone's the same, well, ho-hum, ho-hum, <laughs> in a way. Mm. And, and so part of our hum, human lives is we struggle with the fact that everyone is different and we want, you know, the left brain has very carefully worked and the communities that are left brain oriented have very carefully worked to um, segregate and organize and place everything that fits together nicely. We all have to belong together. But what it fails to do is understand that part of that belonging together is the uniqueness, the interconnectedness, that we are all different. And we all bring something to that table of consciousness experiencing itself. Generally from the experiencers, I notice two different outcomes, usually. One, they either go to a dark place that's very calm and peaceful, and then they return, or they go to a place of light and it's overwhelming love and unconditional love. So why does a person experience that overwhelming love? Is it becoming, why is that place that? Is that where pure consciousness is? Or what is going on, in your opinion? For me, consciousness, I I know you mentioned energy, and yes, it is energy, but it's a... in different um, cultures around the world, and particularly esoteric cultures, it has been discussed in different ways. And um, it's often called the sea of consciousness because it is like a sea. You're in it and it's everywhere, but it is you and it is. And so there is absolutely everything in consciousness that exists and there is absolutely no thing and nothing in consciousness that exists. So it's that that kind of um paradox of it's everything and yet it's nothing and if it's experiencing itself then everything that happens in that um, is interconnected and we're not separate from anything at all and we are made up of um, consciousness that forms into matter And that matter in the human self gives us a sense of separation and the illusion of separation. But it is only the matter that is being, if you like, um, moved by consciousness. But consciousness doesn't need matter in the physical form. Can you explain how the body or matter evolves in the consciousness? and then dissolves in the afterlife? Well, this is my understanding of it from my experience. Because the four elements, the experience of the earth, wind, air, and fire, earth, air, fire, and water, sorry, and the ethers, and the ethers in this case would be consciousness and the etheric realm. Um, in, in my near-death experience, that was a really interesting thing for me. And I've always been very... Uh, connected to the Devic realms and um, so the elemental realms of earth, air, fire and water. But I thought, what's this about? And I studied shamanism and uh, work as a shamanic practitioner and healer and the four directions, the four elements are very important. They make up how matter dissolves and how matter forms. So in a, and it can be seen through sacred ge- geometry. It can be seen and how cells and how things, the flower of life is a very good example of that. The Native American um, medicine wheel, 
the four elements and the fifth element in the middle, which is spirit or ether. In Buddhist cultures with the mandalas and their meditations and the wheel of life, it's that expression of that. And in my uh, investigations of it and also, I guess, it takes a long time to integrate the experiences that we have. And so sometimes you hear something or you might come across something that will give you another aha moment. So you have a lot of aha moments as a result of the near-death experience, but throughout life you have more and you integrate more. And um, I was at a, uh, a Buddhist event and um, not the first one I've been to because uh, by, by Long Street. And there was a, an elder who was discussing um, living and dying and their process of afterlife, into the afterlife. And um, he was discussing meditating and exploring the four elements and the fifth element in order to understand how to, to navigate the afterlife or the biodome. And I thought, okay, that's what I was showing you. This is how it manifests. And when you are preparing for death and or when you have died, the physical body has died, if you understand how the astral realms um, present themselves, if you understand what's in the astral realm, then um, and in the other layers of uh, consciousness, you can navigate back through the afterlife. And um, in Aboriginal and Indigenous cultures around the world, their dead people navigate through the stars because we come from the stars. That was another profound thing for my team. We come from the stars. So it's about navigating back into the stars, if you like, into that consciousness aspect. And that's how it manifests, how matter comes forward. And um, in the in the Bible and other um, spiritual tenets, they discuss, you know, we come from clay and the body is formed from the earth. And, and so it's that connection that we have with the earth. And then we give the body back to earth before we move back into consciousness again for the next, um, the next return home, the next incarnation, the next whatever we're going to be doing. So you're also a medium and a telepath. Yeah. Um, I want to know what are these conscious beings doing outside of the body and why they're contacting you and okay. and why are, why are they going somewhere else to the light or you know or why are they hanging around the earth? Okay. Well, firstly to explain that I came in as a medium and psychic and telepath and had those experiences as a child. Since my near death and and having experienced consciousness at the level that I did, my um, and probably also because I'm an INSP, I have the capacity to be able to travel up and down vibrations and in and through different levels of vibrations. That um, means it facilitates the work that I came to do with the earth and with helping people understand consciousness. But also as a medium, it means that because uh, every medium has a, has different skill sets. So, as a child, I had be, I had um, beings from different places who would come and visit, and I had watchers who would watch what was happening and monitoring. And now with the earthwork, I have 
like praying mantis beings that I work with, angels that I work with, galactic beings, uh, people from Sirius, Pleiades. They, they have been visiting this planet since the beginning of the planet. And they have a curiosity about us. Sometimes their connection with us is completely and absolutely relative to what we volunteer to do before the incarnation. So the fact that they come and communicate with me is connected to what I came to do, uh, the skill sets they, I came in with, and also um, how we can work together to help fulfill what they need to do and what I need to do, and then help with the collective awakening of human consciousness and the ascension of the earth. So those beings are doing that to facilitate that process. Then there are beings that, if you like, are caught in the astral realm. And some people who die get caught in the astral realm. And I've worked a lot with those in, in my life as a medium because dead people often, again, since the ND, they often come and find me because they know I can help them return back to the light. Um, and if people die in a situation of shock, trauma, um, or horror, or fear, or unexpected, often it's like the energy of their inner um, consciousness leaves, but the imprint, the psychic imprint of them is left because they're bewildered. They don't know what's happened. And this is where sometimes that connection with ghosts is. But so I often work with people who've died in trauma and children and adults and who, whoever else, other beings as well, to assist them in returning back to the light because it's like that, that capacity to reconnect and remember got severed in the process of the shock and trauma. So there are some beings who just hang about and it's not, and, and consciousness um, is about intention, light between the light and the dark. So everything is about intention and love is the under, underwriting intention. So therefore those beings are being the, the best that they can be within what they know and understand. Okay. In your book, you talk about remembering the goddess Isis and the mm. quest for the divine feminine or holy grail from the female perspective. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that? The divine feminine is an important part of the right brain and understanding intuition and understanding that we actually have two brains for a reason and uh, it's, it's about intuition, discernment and development of connection to consciousness. Left brain tends to separate us from consciousness. Right brain tends to facilitate um, ease of experiencing consciousness without the need to label it and identify it. So having full direct experience of it. And um, part of the journey is to remember that aspect of us and remember who we are. And Isis is a um, was an ancient goddess um, and was one of the seeding goddesses of this planet that we have connected into within our archetypal mythology and also within our DNA patterning. And 
throughout history, there's been discussions of the Holy Grail where the knights go to find the Holy Grail mm-hmm. or, um, you know, they get the cup or they, um, the Holy Grail manifests in all different ways, the Ark of the Covenant, all sorts of things that are discussed. But it's very rarely discussed from the point of view of the females who do that. And and what's interesting about that in two ways is women do that too. But also it's actually, the Holy Grail is actually about accessing the divine feminine. So terms like slaying the dragon were not actually about they were sometimes there were dragons that needed attention, but they were not actually about killing the dragon. They were about um, the energy of the dragon energy in the earth and slaying the dragon to awaken it in oneself and and take if not so much take charge of it, but to know how to manage it. So again, the knights on the horses was about how you can manage energy, how you can be at one with the energy patterns that run through us, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, but knock us off center, knock us off balance. And in shamanic practices, if you're facing your dark night of your soul or if you're facing your worst fears, for most people that knocks them off their horse they lose their night. You know, as knights, they can't stay on the horse. So part of that expression is about staying on your horse, being able to sit in your mount no matter what happens. And so in my experiences with working with the earth energies and different beings who encourage me to do the stuff, um, it's a, I travel to different sites, uh, often physically and very often remote viewing-wise to investigate what's happened in the earth, what we've forgotten and how we can activate these energies to move back through the earth out into consciousness and help humanity remember this divine feminine and the elements of Isis. And so the book, um, I thought the book, the first book that I would write, well, actually, I didn't even think I was going to write a book. But if you had asked me if I wrote a book, what would you about? It would be something to do with the near-death experience. But it became, they wanted me to write about um, working with the goddess temples and that divine feminine energy and the imprints in Malta that have influenced and activated our divine consciousness and our planet and our human species. So like Atlantis, Lemuria, all those ancient things that we're part of that we need to remember to understand. And in the book, I, I talk about it from a point of view of the pilgrimage work, um, interacting with different sacred sites. And, and I um, did that because um, I thought it was a, a way of describing how those essences of coming back into the divine feminine and the Holy Grail start to move in the body. And also because I was on a plane flying back to London when this voice boomed in my ear that you need to write about this. And I was like, I don't think so. I think you've got the wrong person. Mm. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, this is really what we need you to do and what you're going to do and and so on and so forth. So um, I did that. And other books that I've uh, in the process of writing are part of that, continuing the development of the understanding of that. 
So the majority of my NDE guests either come from the U.S. or Australia, not even the U.K. or or Europe. Why do you think these two countries and nothing else? Well, this is a theory that I have off the top of my head. Um, there are certain places on the pla- planet that are activation points for the collective awakening. And uh, the USA is one of those. And uh, as you know, in, your, in, your, in the USA, there have been some things that have been going on that has really caused a lot of consternation and new questioning. Um, but in ancient uh, spiritual practices, uh, that was a part of the place where there would be an opening and a new understanding. And Australia has a different energy template, but it, it has that going. And then there's places around the world that infuse that and activate that. And so it makes sense to me also that Australia um, in a time zone format is at the front of the world. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that things are going to happen here because even if nobody knows that they're happening in Australia, then that's going to um, activate something elsewhere in the energetic template and frequency of the planet and the cosmos. Um, moving from the UK, well, I had an experience, but but uh, and, and there are plenty of people I know from the UK who've had those experiences. Maybe uh, English we don't necessarily talk about them. I don't know. But I do know in my own life, when I look back, there were three potential places that I would have near-death experience. And that fascinates me because that also lines back to if as volunteers and as soul volunteers, we are being, um, you know, we know what's here. We know what we're coming into. We know what we're volunteering for and we know what's going to happen and how we can navigate that is a part of remembering, reconnecting, recalling, which I help people to do. And remembering Atlantis, I think, is a really important thing at the moment. And America and Australia have deep connections to that, as does Europe, but all different countries do. But so in my experience with my near death, um, for what my soul needed to do and bring forward in this incarnation and assist and wake up to if that's the right word, it could have happened in South America. It could have happened in um, Malta or that um, area of the Mediterranean, maybe not necessarily Malta, but that area. Or it could have happened in Israel because those three places were important to the energetic template that was, was necessary for that acti- for my activation and my uh, near-death experience to have the influence underneath it. Um, and also for me as a soul to be able to activate in the way that was important for me to be able to work in the many different layers that I do. So there's not really... Um, mistakes in which countries are coming forward in different ways to share information. You mentioned earlier that you had contact, I think, with mantis beings. Um, I think, um, I can't remember which star system, Lyrians or... or um, well, pretty much a, a lot of them because they've all manifested on the Earth. The Lyrians, the... Um, 
Pleiadians, Syrians, people yeah. from Orion, Arcturus. Yeah, all the constellations you can think of, really. I, why do you, when do you think full disclosure is going to happen and when are we going to join the galactic community? Because I think once we have at least full disclosure, all of a sudden humanity is just going to take this great leap forward. I think it's in the process of happening. I think more and more people are aware that there's something else that's out there. And if you, in um, certainly in statistical research, if they ask about in the States about how many people um, experience NDEs or believe in NDEs, there's a high statistic actually. And the same with contact um, statistics, they're quite high. But within the mainstream idea of um, fear-based, keeping everybody um, fear-based, that's not talked about. And we have, myself and other people have experience of, of I've seen the weirder look many times. I've seen the, um, I've been required to almost like defend a position that I don't hold in order to help other people feel safe about they don't exist or they do exist or do they all abduct all those sorts of things. So there's shifts going on, but we still have on an individual within the collective level, people still have doubt. And some of that is belief systems that have been taught to them. But all the ancient cultures knew it and they've always known they came from the stars. So there's been something that's gone on in order to prevent us from knowing that. And as we gather that information and that knowledge, everything will change. It's like when you come across things, say, in, um, uh, in relation to your understanding of the world, it pushes boundaries. And in generations we grew, um, with people watching television, as children, they grew up with certain things that were, if you like, programming. Um, so in certain generations, there were uh, things, well, Star Trek is one, it's a, and the Gene Roddenberry who wrote it um, was part of a, a group who were interacting with the Council of Nine. And so um, he was sharing some of the information that he was, using creative license, I'm sure, but nevertheless from those experiences. So there are people in Hollywood and there are people in the movie world who are sharing information. And in the 1960s, there was I Dream of Genie, Lost in Space, Star Trek. Um, uh, I I can't think of more, but there's a whole load more of there was something other out there, and that was probably connected with the moon landings and whether we believe the moon landings occurred or not. So what's happening at this point in time, we have to move from the left brain understanding to a balanced left and right brain. But we've gone from one extreme to the other at the moment, and so everything has become polarised. And if you believe that UFOs are real, then it's highly possible you can end up in an argument with somebody who doesn't agree that they don't exist. And so it's become opinion-oriented. And part of this understanding of that we come from the stars is we need to heal and work all that through Mm. because that's how we will understand it and also there is change going where people are whistleblowers and sharing information and that takes as long as it takes for our consciousness 
as a human collective consciousness to be able to sustain it. Because for many people, like when I first started talking about energy, people would say to me, well, is that a DC current or an AC current? And I think, oh, I don't know how to explain I, I, I know the difference, but I don't know how to explain that because if they're thinking it's about whether it's a battery current or an electric current, and even then I don't know that I'm explaining it properly. I'm not talking about that kind of energy. And now lots of people use the word energy and we make assumptions that we're all talking about the word energy in the same way. But we're not because there's a, a general understanding of the word energy um, and there's a general understanding of the word healing and there's a general understanding of the word UFOs and aliens. But actually they've become part of the common vernacular but I don't know that our understanding has reached where we can clearly discern and, and understand it. You've had a lot of contact, I believe, before your NDE, mm-hmm. but during your NDE, it sounds like you didn't contact any beings. From what I understood, they were kind of in the distance and you kind of vaguely saw them or whatever, but you didn't have any contact with any, any, I was going to say anyone, but I'm not sure how to say any being. But anyways, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because... um I already had the contact with them, so that didn't need to be activated. Um, and I also, um, and I've had lots of contact with them since. And, uh, uh, you know, I know in the afterlife, a lot of people have contact with different beings. The process for me was to really allow the full memory of who I am and who I am not to come forward so that I could do what I came to do with those beings. And rather than have to have an integration process about that, because, you know, the NDEs take time to integrate, it enabled me to integrate what I already knew and remember that so that the work could happen and new beings could then come in to do things on a conscious level. So you mentioned the praying mantis and I probably went off track there. But So when when I have experiences with the praying mantis, we work together with the fields and the consciousness in the earth and they're golden praying mantis beings and there are worker praying mantis beings that I see and I have had contact with them but the bulk of the praying mantis beings that I have contact with are very, very large in etheric energy templates um, golden mantis being and it's about shifting the frequencies in the earth and shifting the frequencies in human consciousness so do you think ndes happen by accident well no i don't i, I mean i think i think ndes can happen for all sorts of reasons and they will be unique to each person depending on what that person um needs to learn and or um, has come to do because there's, a, there's usually a mission and a purpose associated with an MBE. But in my case, and I started to investigate it um, for some talks, because I really believe that the MBE is a, is a potential soul, tr- uh, is a potential event triggered by the soul. So when we're coming in and we're kind of knowing that we need to do certain things in this life or meet certain people, and uh, at certain situations, there will be something that happens in order for us to have 
a spiritual transformation or some kind of an awakening process or some kind of deeper understanding of what we actually really exist in and that this is the illusion. The other is the real, but this is the illusion. And the more ha- the more people that have it and the more people that talk about it, then the chances are the seeding, the, you know, that star seeding, the all star seeding comes out and can share that information. And, and so, like, uh, in the early days, I'm, I still think um, they were potentially part of a, a trigger that we hold in our energy frequencies that's going to be activated. Like, for me, it could have been activated in three places, but it happened in Israel. Um, and there will be certain events that will trigger it, and for many of us it's an illness or some kind of accident. Um, but Socrates, I'm pretty sure it was Socrates, wrote about his soldiers who died in battle and then came back to life, and that was a puzzle. So that was a long time ago. And then in, the, I think it was the 1920s or the late 1800s, um, people who went mountain climbing would fall from great heights and thought they were dying, and then they survived it. And so people, psychologists began to write about these experiences. So they've happened for a long time, but right now we seem to be in a, in a position where more and more people are experiencing it or certainly more and more people are, are feeling comfortable to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if we're all being triggered to awaken and we're all individual aspects of consciousness awakening in order to share that um, process of collective right brain experience on this planet, then um, the more of us that have those experiences, the more likely we are to be able to achieve our mission. You know, particularly if um, if if some people have come, some people come in and they're very, very, very asleep and they're living very unconscious lives. And so someone who has a near-death experience, that changes the foundations of absolutely everything in their life absolutely everything changes and those people will have um maybe um well they'll have a perhaps more difficult time integrating than others Uh, but the more of us that are awake and the more of us that are all like little light pockets on the planet that quest for understanding why contact happens, that quest for understanding about alien encounters, that quest for understanding about the real history of this planet that's been hidden very, very well for thousands of years and we've been encouraged not to know it um, and to not know our own personal um, connection to consciousness that we are all consciousness experiencing itself. That can happen. And in the East they talk about, you know, that enlightenment happens in a moment. And it's not necessarily something that we can work towards. Um, or we don't have to work towards it. We can work towards it, but it happens in a moment. But it's that staying in that level of in life, that level of consciousness that I think is the way we're going to be moving forward so that we can live in constant contact with those higher realms and those higher frequencies and yet still embody. Um, an unconditional loving life on earth. All right, I need to switch gears on you, Paulina. <laughs> um, can you please tell the audience the, the title of your book and where they can find it? Okay. The title of the book is uh, 
it's long. It's called Remembering Isis, uh, Reconnecting the Divine Feminine at the Goddess Temples of Malta. And you can find that on my website uh, at paulinahalfield.com. Or also, um, there's a few links to that. One is uh, Matrix Harmonics, and that also has a, a Facebook page with it, so it's, as does my own name, and also the Earth Whisperer, because there are three aspects of the work that I do. Um, so you can find that um, on my page uh, under products. You can have a look there, and other products are there as well. And other books that I will be writing will come up there when they're ready. And also there's a blog people can have a look at if they'd like to. And also the cosmic conversations I occasionally have with people about it. Oh, great. After this podcast, people may want to contact you and have a chat with you. So are you a public or private person? And if so, can they contact you on Facebook or, or where can they? Um, I have a public page uh, on Facebook, my name, Paulina Halford, um, and they, uh, I don't tend to use Messenger much. So uh, probably if I'm very happy for people to contact me. Um, they can all, always email me and I can give you my email address. But they can also find my, that email address at a contact page on my website. So the email address is the initial P, Howfield, at hotmail.com. And they can find the contact page at my website, uh, um, either via the link to paulinahowfield.com or matrixharmonics.com. And I'm happy to uh, do um, help people integrate contact experiences and I'm, ha I'm happy to assist with that process and plus lives and uh, also just anything else that people want to learn more about, um, they can find me that way. I believe that some people who watch this podcast are recent near-death experiencers themselves and they don't really communicate it their experiences to anybody and they don't know how to integrate it with in their life. Do you help people who are in that situation? Yes, I do. I help people integrate that. And I think that's important because in the early days, it, like it just takes time. And I think for the rest of our lives, actually, we unfold that information. And there's bits that we all forget and there's bits that we also all don't share because they're about our own journey and they're not necessarily relevant to anyone else. Um, and sometimes they're just a bit off, you know, they're a bit weird. Uh, yeah. So they can contact me with that. And also people who are, I often work with people who are dying and want to know how to die well mm -hmm. and want to know how to um, work with navigating the realms before death so that they can return back to source or have a good death. Um, I also um, help people with that as well because I think that's really, really important. The more we're frightened of death, and the more we believe that this is the body and this is, and, and this incarnation is it, the more programmable we become. Wow. How to have a good death is a great subject for a podcast. So I may need to get you back on and we, you can tell everybody to, yeah. about how to have a good death and how to navigate once you're out of the body. I'd be happy to I think that. I think that would be great. Um, all right, so before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message you want to share with the audience? I have, I, oh, okay. I kind of have two things to okay. say. Um, one is that 
uh, at this time on this planet, there's amazing, amazing change going on. And one of the ways to embrace this change is by having a soul-to-soul relationship with the earth because she knows everything that's going on. She's our oldest ancient ancestor. And she can, she, if we sit in communion with her and understand what she's trying to communicate, a lot of the fears, a lot of the concerns, a lot of the what ifs and what's going on can settle because the earth knows and she can just support and love. And that leads to the next thing, and that is that the foundation of everything in the universe is love. And love is all there is. And anything that doesn't feel like love is love in disguise or fear expressing itself. And when we remember that, it's easier to recognize the choices that we make in every moment in our life. We choose to be friendly. We choose to be kind. We choose to be loving. We choose to be helpful. We choose our emotional state. And if love is all there is, everything else is just a disguise and it's, it's a useful platform then to understand what is preventing us from feeling that love that is our innate aspect of expression. That was great. Thank you. Cool. And, and Paulina, thank you very much for being my guest. I really appreciate you. And also, I was going to tell you, when you finish your next book, contact me so we can get you back to talk about that. Well, that would be great. I'd love to. It's, it's going to be a lot about some of the experiences with contact and, and different ones. So it might be something that your audience will really like too. So thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. All right. Well, I would say have a great evening, but it's probably afternoon in Australia yeah, right now. Is. So. Have a great rest of your day, and I wish you the best. Thank you, and the same to you, and thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.